This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, they said no to Nixon. Historian Michael Kansowitz will talk about Republicans who stood up to the, re- to the president's abuses of power in the late 60s and early 70s, and Republicans today who don't. Also, we're still thinking about Ricky Jay, who died on Sunday. He was a master showman, one of the world's greatest sleight-of-hand artists. He did amazing things with a deck of cards, his 52 assistants. We spoke with him here in 2001. We'll replay that interview later in the show. First up, Donald Trump and conservative white women. Trump Watch starts right now. Why is it so hard to believe that Trump supporters really do support Trump? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. She also writes for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and other publications. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, didn't it feel good to read that New York Times article a few weeks ago about the White women in rural Texas who hate Trump and love Beto just like we do? You know, the New York Times never stops looking <laughs> for the cracks in the wall of Trumpitude. They are always checking in with the folksy rural conservatives, trying to, you know, checking, checking their political temperature to see if they've changed their minds. Well, and of course, you can find those people. They found one. Uh, there was one who, who she drove to her church, and what did she find at her church? There was another car in the parking lot with a Beto sticker. So that's two. <laughs> two. Um, so, yeah, they're always going to, you know, the Daffodil Diner in Smallville, Nebraska, <laughs> and interviewing the retired farmers and, and all hoping that they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm really disappointed in Trump's East tariffs. That's really terrible. But no, they don't say that. They say, oh, let's build that wall. <laughs> well, uh, in, that wall? There, there was another one of those, actually, uh, the sort of, well, uh, you know, the problem is, what are we going to do about these people? My, uh, these people, especially the white women, 53%, the number we cannot forget, 53% of white women voters in 2016 voted for Trump. My assumption is we have the right ideas. We just have to find better ways of convincing those women who support Trump that they should change their minds. Well, good luck with that, John. Um, <laughs> if you have an infinite amount of time to spend going one by one, making friends with them, and then slowly, slowly, uh, you know, uh, invading their brain with your thoughts. Maybe that will work, but mostly those women are just like you and just like me. They think the things they think for a dozen reasons, and more than that. And it's not really easy to change people's minds. I've been writing my column for, you know, 20 years or something, and I think I could probably count the people whose minds I've changed on one hand, and oh. most of them were young. Oh, come on. And no, really. All right, two hands, two hands, <laughs> and my maybe my toes. <laughs> but I'm just trying to say, you. I, I think it shows respect for people to assume that 
they are as as determined. They've thought it through, uh, and they have their ideas, and they have their ideas, and they're not just going to change it because you come and proselytize them. That's what I didn't like about that idea. Was the idea? Well, several things. One. White women have some special bond with other white women <laughs> that serves as a a bridge to persuade. I mean, I, a New York Jew, have very little in common with an evangelical in Arkansas just because we share a skin color. Um, and I think there was something sort of punitive about this suggestion. It was like, you white women, you can expiate your racism by converting other white women. And meanwhile, just to say one more thing, sure. while, we focus, while we focus on the white women, the 53%, you know, far more white men voted for Trump. Um, and yet they're just, it, we just assume, oh yeah, well, they're ungettable. They really, you know, they have their interests at heart. They're unpersuadable. They're beyond hope. Nobody's saying, white men, you have to go out and persuade the white men. Well, I think the reason one reason for that difference is that Trump has been so incredibly sexist and harsh uh, in his treatment of women, in his remarks on women, and you know the two dozen women who said they were sexually assaulted by women that what middle class white women who have daughters and so on might might think that Trump is wrong to treat women this way, but apparently they don't. No, apparently maybe they do think that think. He's wrong to treat them that way. They're just not voting that on, yeah. on that ground. Well, I heard uh, I heard a roundtable with uh, white uh, women who voted for Trump who were asked about the uh, Access Hollywood tape, and there, what they said was, "Well, this is what men are like. Men are pigs. You know, that's what they're they're all like that." I, I don't know. If, I I know you would never say men are pigs, but there are women who think that. There are, and they're probably married to men who justify that conclusion every day. <laughs> um, there's a certain amount of evidence for it in daily life. Um, but uh, I think that, and I just want to say also that it's interesting that, you know, feminists are always being said, oh, you hate men and you think men are so terrible. Actually, it's anti-feminists who think that. Anti-feminists are the ones who think men just are like that, and you can't change them, and you have to just adapt. Um, that is the anti-male. That's a good point. I like feminist position. I like that point. I like well, that point. Well, um, thank you. I, I give it to you. <laughs> I will quote you. So, um, you know, we had a guest on our show uh, several months ago, the Berkeley so- sociologist Arlie Hochschild, who spent yeah. a lot of time with Trump supporters in rural Louisiana in the bayous and became friends with several of them. And she made a case that we should feel a lot of empathy for poor people in Louisiana because especially these people in the bayous have been screwed royally by the big oil and gas companies, which have polluted their streams and rivers and destroyed their way of of life. Uh, They do support, they did vote for Trump, but... uh, don't you feel empathy for Arlie Hochschild's friends in the bayous? Well, they weren't so poor, um, as I remember it. I read that book a, a while ago, but um, I don't think they were so poor. Some of them, a few of them were, but most of them were like most Trump supporters, middle class people. Um, they seem, you know, Arlie has a tremendous literary gift of making you like everyone she writes about. <laughs> 
Um, she is such a good, kind person. But here, I think she let them a little bit off the hook because uh, they blame their problems on other people. Cutting in line, that's the phrase they use. Who are those people cutting in line? Well, people of color, immigrants, women. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, how, why did, how did you get your place in line? You know, why shouldn't other people cut ahead of you? Um, there was an entitlement there that I don't think she really reckoned with um, enough. And that's exactly, you know, that affirmative action is just giving inferior people special privileges and all that kind of thing. And who are these women anyway? Um, so I do find it, I did find it hard to emphasize with that point of view. Um, it's a very interesting book, though, and I recommend it to all uh, you listeners out there. Um, I learned a lot from reading it. Well, Arlie Hochschild is very uh, empathetic to women who support Trump. You refer in your new column in The Nation to, quote, obedient wives of porn-addicted bullies, close quote. That doesn't sound very empathic. <laughs> yeah, you're not being fair. <laughs> I, what I said was, uh, what I said was, you know, just as you don't want to be, I'm, it's sort of like in direct discourse where I'm characterizing how you might, you, a, a liberal who's being called upon to make this effort of conversion, you know, you don't want to be what you think of they are, which is a porn, you know, an obedient wife of a porn addicted Christian bully. And they don't want to be like you, a slutty baby killer. Um, oh, I see. You know? I see. Well, yeah. so, so. Uh, why did 53% of white women vote for Trump? Well, I think they voted for him for the same reason that the men did. Um, they, they don't like immigrants. They want to lock Hillary Clinton up. They don't want their kids to go to school with black people. Uh, they, they think uh, Mexico and China have stolen our jobs, and Clinton, and, uh, sorry, not Clinton, um, Trump will bring them back. They want low taxes. Um, they think MS-13 is going to kill their children. I mean, people have actually said this. They believe a lot of things that aren't true, um, like uh, global warming isn't happening. Um, and um, they're deeply religious in a religion that is uh, extremely conservative. Well, and, and they um, believe if, if I uh, they believe that you know God works in mysterious ways, and apparently he sent us Donald Trump. That's right. You know they do. I just want to mention you know abortion. I think for a lot of them, abortion is an important issue. They wanted to they wanted to get the courts to uh, overturn Roe and outlaw abortion to the extent that that's possible. Um, so, uh, but it is amazing that they you know they believe that. Barack Obama, who lo love him or hate him, was polite. He was completely scandal-free. Um, and they think he's the Antichrist. And yet the foul-mouthed, abusive, um, doing all kinds of criminal shenanigans with money, Donald Trump is God's instrument. And then if you say God's instrument, they say, oh, yeah, like De King David. King David, you know, he, he did some terrible things, but he was God's instrument. So what can you do with that? Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Katha Pollitt about uh, white women who support Trump and what to do about them. Actually, uh, oh, I wanted to talk about another white woman who supports Trump that was in the New York Times uh, uh, today, I think it was. So Trump announced, 
Uh, the General Motors announced it was closing four factories in Michigan, uh, uh, what, Ohio, and Maryland, including the famous Lordstown, Ohio GM plant. Uh, and the New York Times went out there and asked people, now, now have you changed your mind about Trump? Because Trump, after all, went to Lordstown, Ohio mm -hmm. during the campaign and said, the jobs are all coming back, don't sell your house. And now thousands of uh, workers at Lordstown GM plant are being laid off. The New York Times interviewed Joyce Oleski, a 23-year employee at the plant, who used to make $100,000 a year because there was so much overtime. Her view is it's not Trump's fault. It's GM's fault. GM is more powerful than Trump. Uh, he tried to do his best to help them, and uh, they're being screwed by General Motors. Um, you know, I have to say the view that General Motors is more powerful than Trump, they're not completely wrong about that. Well, people go very far to preserve their their priors, their worldview. I suppose, you know, you could respond to that. Well, but what about all those tariffs? Didn't that have something to do with this? I read something that said, you know, the tariffs had really screwed up GM's um, business, and so it was cutting back. Um, but uh, I don't know what you can say to that. Well, what this you know, woman, what this, this woman so th then they interviewed another woman uh, who who uh, worked at GM Lordstown, Rochelle Carlisle. She once made a hundred thousand dollars a year because of all the overtime. She has been laid off. She is now a waitress at Cracker Barrel, making two hundred fifty dollars a week. Uh, she doesn't blame Trump either. She says, you know, it's General Motors would rather manufacture cars outside of the country just because it's cheaper, and uh, the tariffs didn't help with that. She also says, quote, without a union, GM workers would be making $11 an hour. The union is the best defense we have. So Yeah, well, it is. Unions are good. We should all be in one. Um, and <laughs> Even Cracker Barrel workers. Even Cracker Barrel workers. Um, you know, I mean, I wrote, an, I wrote a, a column a while ago about a woman who had, uh, was in the news a lot, but she was another in, uh, a factory worker in Indiana, and she had voted for Trump. And then she, she lost her job. Um, and, you know, just to going through how the Republican frame around work uh, and workers is hurting her um, and all the, and the cutbacks, which she may well support. I mean, you know, ask, ask a Trump supporter who's lost it. Well, how do you feel about food stamps? Food stamps are being cut back. How do you feel about, you know, school cuts? You're, you know, your child is getting a worse education than you did, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that the bottom line is they really like him. Um, and just the way there is probably prob probably nothing that you could say to a person who really likes Hillary Clinton that would persuade them to think Hillary Clinton yeah. was, you know, a dishonest enabler of Bill's philandering. Um, even so, there's probably not much you can say that will change the minds of these very that very dedicated core of Trump supporters that base. Yeah, well, your argument here is really about where we should focus our energy right. and our political strategy. Exactly. Where can we find more people to vote for progressive Democrats? And what's your answer to that? 
Well, you know, I think that we see that answer in Georgia. For example, in the last election, Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project registered hundreds of thousands of new voters and and brought them to the polls. And they probably she probably won that election. Um, you know, with except for all the dirty tricks and voter suppression disenfranchisement that Secretary of State running for governor Brian Kemp was able to you know perform on his own behalf. Um, but you know that made the difference for people lower down the ticket. For example, this and this is interesting. Okay, Lucy McBath, yeah, a black woman whose son was killed with a gun. She runs for Congress from GA6, which is the district that uh, John Ossoff, the white, moderate, golden boy, famously failed to win, despite an enormous amount of money being poured into Millions, millions, $20 million. I think it was the most ever at that time. Um, And she won. And I think that's because of there was a new uh, emphasis on bringing in people who had been left out and marginalized in the process. Um, and I think we need to do more of that. Um, and meanwhile, you know, we can try to bring the Trumpies along, um, but I just don't think it's going to be very successful. And there's some, there are some people who voted for Trump who may be amenable. Um, Gary Young, our colleague at The Nation, uh, talked to some people uh, in Ohio in the last election who did voted for Trump. They did not really like Trump very mm-hmm. much. But they have big problems, and Obama had not helped them with their problems in eight years. And so sort of out of desperation, they said, well, maybe this guy will help us. He said he'll help us. The Democrats have failed us. Let's see if he does. Uh, Those people may very well be persuadable the next time around. Yeah, I think it will depend on who the Democrat is. Yeah. If it's. Uh, but, you know, I just want to remind you that, uh, uh, what's his name, Richard Ocheda, Ojeda, yes. uh, thought he could win with that kind of an appeal as a Democrat in his West Virginia district. And he stressed his white working class roots, and he was very, uh, very macho and uh, guns and all like that. He was pro-choice. That was very good. Um, and he even acknowledged that he had voted for Trump himself. And he lost. It's not that easy. Um, it's not. not that easy. It's not that easy to win over Trump supporters. Of course, it's not that easy to register the unregistered. But the certainly, well, you've convinced me. Let me say, you've convinced me. We're more likely. Oh, oh you've made <laughs> I've, my day. I've changed my mind. I used to think. Katha Pollitt. She wrote about conservative white women and Donald Trump for her new column in the Nation. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's fun. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch. Next up, Republicans Against the President. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. 
Later in this hour, the master showman Ricky Jay died on Sunday. We'll replay an interview we did with him here in 2001. But first, they said no to Nixon. Republicans who stood up to the president's abuses of power in the early 1970s, and Republicans today who don't. That's the subject of a new book by Michael Konsowitz. He's the Cold War Collection Specialist at the Tamament Library at New York University. He previously worked for the National Archives at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. He's written for the LA Times op-ed page and other publications, and he was a student of mine at UC Irvine, where he wrote a PhD dissertation about Nixon. Michael Konsowitz, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, John. Well, comparisons between Nixon and Trump are irresistible, but we're going to try to resist for a few minutes. Uh, people who know about Watergate know how the Republicans abandoned him at the end, especially the Republican leaders of the Senate. He resigned as president because the Republican leaders of the Senate told him he couldn't win an impeachment trial there. But you have a different focus, not the Republicans in the Senate at the end. What's your focus? So most of the characters in my book are Republicans who worked inside of the Nixon administration. Uh, some of them were actually appointed by Richard Nixon, and they resisted Nixon's dark side, Nixon's attempts to take over the IRS and go after his political enemies, uh, Nixon's attempt to use uh, federal funding of universities in a very political and partisan way. These are Republicans who stood up to those projects, and they did so with, with very little media attention. Uh, some were actually with no media attention at all. And some of these stories are told for the first time in my book uh, that just came out last month. So Nixon wanted to use the power of the federal government uh, to punish his political enemies. Uh, let's talk about some specifics. Let's start with the IRS. Sure. So Richard Nixon, uh, who always believed that he was unfairly targeted by the IRS uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, that's a story we can perhaps talk about later, but he, he, he felt that he was attacked by the IRS uh, as, as a private citizen and as a vice president and as a presidential candidate. And it didn't take long once he became president that he started to try to find ways to use the IRS for political purposes. Uh, he really, though, ramps up this, this attempt in the summer of 1972 uh, when he is determined to go after the then uh, chairman of the DNC, Larry O'Brien. And so he puts very, very uh, major pressure on the IRS to go after Larry O'Brien, figure out what's going on with his finances. Uh, he wants to know specifically how much money he's getting from Howard Hughes, in 1972, he's convinced that there's a lot of unreported income. On this order, the IRS actually does cave a bit, and they bring Larry O'Brien in, and they actually discover that he's uh, owed a refund. <laughs> uh, but then the very next month, Nixon, who is convinced that the IRS is not political enough, is not doing his bidding, uh, he sends... John Dean to meet with the commissioner of the IRS, and that's Johnny Walters. Uh, Johnny Walters is a Republican from South Carolina, uh, was a former employee of John Mitchell at the Justice Department, and starting in 1971, he was the commissioner of the IRS. Well, in September 1972, he met with his former colleague, John Dean, and John Dean handed him the infamous enemies list. This is a list that uh, many of your listeners are at least vaguely familiar with. Uh, it's roughly about five to six hundred uh, individuals 
Many of them are anti-war activists, civil rights activists, journalists, people who are not guilty of anything other than being a critic of Richard Nixon. These are not organizations. These are individuals. And Johnny Walters is handed this list and is told that it comes from John Dean's boss, so he knows that's either Richard Nixon or his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman. And he, uh, Dean tells Walters to use this list for political purposes, to, to use this list to initiate audits uh, against hundreds and hundreds of the, of the president's enemies. This is September 1972, three months after the Watergate break-in, uh, less than two months before a presidential election. And Johnny Walters is given this list, and he tells John Dean that he's not going to do anything with it. He wow. goes to his superior, George Shultz, who is then the Secretary of the Treasury, and George Shultz backs Johnny Walters. He agrees that this is crossing a line. Uh, he, he doesn't care that Nixon is griping about him not being tough enough behind the scenes. Uh, he, he sees this order as incredibly dangerous. And he, he well, he, to, to, he says no to Nixon in September of 1972. These, this story is not pu- publicized until a year later. Uh, once Watergate becomes a national story and investigations pick up in the summer and fall of 1973, that's when this, this story is uncovered. It gets a little bit of media attention, but... I argue that since 1973, uh, our collective memory of Watergate has become a little fuzzy, and yeah. especially when it comes to the enemies list. You ask most people, and I've done this, I think most people would assume that the enemies list was actually used by civil servants who worked for Nixon. Well, what I've uncovered is that George Shultz, Johnny Walters, and other civil servants in the IRS stood up to the enemies list project. And, of course, Nixon hated student anti-war activists. They were also in his uh, sights. Uh, What was his approach to using the power of the federal government to get student anti-war activists? Well, starting in the spring of 1970, after Nixon's decision to invade Cambodia, uh, this, of course, leads to the, the shootings at Kent State and major demonstrations on Washington, D.C., and many other cities across the country. This is in April and May of 1970. Nixon comes up with a plan where he wants to cut off federal funds to MIT. Uh, why MIT? Well, MIT yeah, is- MIT. I have to say, when you think about where was the student anti-war movement strongest, you would say Berkeley, you right. might say Columbia, you might say Wisconsin or Michigan. I don't think MIT would be in your top ten. No, no, but it was at the top of the list of schools that received federal funds from uh-huh. the Defense Department. And so it received roughly about $100 million uh, in funds from the Pentagon uh, for mostly weapons-related research. So Nixon wants to take these funds away, take these, these military laboratories away from MIT, uh, and he wants to, in a way, demilitarize the campus of MIT. So in, in a weird way, he's on the same side as the then-growing anti-war movement at MIT. It really picked up in a significant way in 1969. Uh, he's kind of on the same page in terms of wanting to take the military off their campus. Uh, the key difference, though, is that he wants to move these funds, move these laboratories to different schools, schools that he's identified with very limited information, but schools that he's identified as being pro-Nixon, mm. schools in the, in the South, schools in the Midwest, 
uh, schools that his advisor, Chuck Colson, uh, is constantly telling him are, are pro-Nixon. Now, I have to interrupt um, here. Yeah. I have to interrupt yeah. here to say, I, far be it from me to defend military funding of campus <laughs> research, but had it occurred to them that MIT had expertise in technology that might not be the case at, you know, Bible schools in Arkansas. It wasn't brought up, at least in the, the conversations that I heard. I think Nixon thought that their, their expertise was overrated, uh-huh. if, uh, if I had to guess <laughs> okay. what he thought. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it is interesting, though, that MIT is, is not the only target. MIT was going to be the test case. Uh, Nixon was prepared to go down the list to, uh, of other schools that received a lot of money from the federal government. And so that would include some of the other schools that you've mentioned. But, I mean, the next schools would be Harvard, Yale, the University of California was on that list. But they're further down. MIT is at the top because they received the most money. But also, MIT in the early 1970s was led by the then-president Jerome Weisner. Uh, and Jerry Weisner was a former Kennedy advisor, uh-huh. someone who Nixon thought really represented the establishment the Ivy League, you know, elite educational establishment of the 1960s and 1970s. And so next to maybe Kingman Brewster, who was the president of Yale in the 1970s, Wisner really represented everything that Nixon detested. In some ways, Nixon hated figures like Jerry Wisner more than the anti-war students. He thought the, estab- the leaders of the educational establishment were soft, uh, that the, they were weak, and they were not with uh, especially his policies in Vietnam. So um, Nixon famous, the reason we know a lot about this, the effort to defund MIT, uh, was that Nixon famously taped his Oval Office conversations, and uh, he did not destroy the tapes. They were rescued and preserved for history. Uh, you have provided us with a clip of Nixon. Tell us a little bit about what this clip we're going to listen to. What is this? Sure. This is a very short clip from a conversation that took place in May of 1972. Uh, So shortly after the Haiphong Harbor bombings of North Vietnam, so you have a new wave of anti-war protests that follow those bombings in the spring of 1972. And Richard Nixon uh, is enraged by the fact that Ivy League presidents and the president of MIT are condemning his actions. They've, they've written uh, statement after statement saying that they oppose Nixon's policies in Vietnam. And this particular clip actually follows a, a, media, a conversation Nixon has with Henry Kissinger, who had actually uh, brought in the, the university presidents into the White House, and Nixon is enraged by that. Uh, so in the middle of his conversation with Henry Kissinger, he calls his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, and orders Haldeman to put more pressure on administration officials to cut funds to MIT. So let us listen. This is from the Nixon White House tapes. I want those funds cut off for that MIT. Right. No. I know what you mean. All right, you get a hold of Weinberger and say, I want the goddamn funds, and I want them to know it now. Get it done. Right. Okay. Thirteen seconds of Richard Nixon, our president. You heard it here on KPFK on the Trump Watch podcast. Uh, so this is an example of the kind of material that Nixon recorded uh, in the Oval Office. How many hours have you, Michael Konsowitz, listened to? I, I don't have an exact number, but I do have an estimate. I would say somewhere between 250 and 300 hours. Uh, and how hard was it to find this particular <laughs> clip? 
Well, this particular clip, uh, fortunately enough, was, uh, well, a transcript of that conversation was actually leaked out to the media in the early 1990s. Uh, so that clip was not hard to find. What was hard to find was other conversations that showed that Nixon, that this was not a single rant, that Nixon actually followed up on this order over and over again in 1972 and into early 1973. So that was the real challenge, was to show that this was not just let Nixon letting off steam. This is so, not Nixon just having a temper tantrum. Uh, this, this was one of many conversations where Nixon brought up the MIT order. And if our listeners want to find more of these, do they have to go to your Belinda and down into the basement and put on the headphones and listen to 250 hours? That's uh, true of some of the tapes. There, there are several websites online where people can listen to, to most of the tapes collection. Uh, I actually believe right now the, the National Archives Richard Nixon Library website is under renovation, So, but hopefully the tapes will be back online soon. Uh, but uh, yes, I, well, you can either go to Yorbalinda, go to the Richard Nixon Library, listen to these tapes, or you can listen to many of them online. And do you have the URL for our many listeners who are eager to rush to their computers and listen to Nixon? Well, as I said, the, the this Nixon one library, yeah, this one didn't. Mil- this one did not come from the National Archives. No, it did not. It came from the Miller Center, which is affiliated with the University of, Miss, uh, of Virginia. They've done a lot of work with the tapes. Uh, they post a lot of segments online. So, if people are interested in hearing some of the highlights from the Nixon tapes, uh, they should visit the Miller Center's website. Great. So, uh, the larger issue here is about. Republicans in the Nixon era compared to Republicans to today. You've documented the Republicans who said no to Nixon. Uh, That raises the question about Republicans today who say no to Trump. Where are the Republicans today who say no to Trump? Well, they more often than not are just uh, making, uh, are, 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 are expressing their serious concerns to the press. Uh, some of them are writing anonymous op-eds. <laughs> uh, many of them are, are just leaking to the media. Uh, these things, or at least some of these things, happened during the Nixon era, but we haven't seen much evidence of substantial resistance to, to Trump's own dark side. So what has uh, happened? What were these Republicans, Johnny Walters, George Shultz, and so on, uh, what makes them different from uh, today's uh, Republicans in the administration who who cower in on an anonymity or don't say anything? Well, I argue that they're 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 coming out of a different political culture that dominates both the Democratic and Republican Party in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and the 1970s is probably the last wave of this, where you actually have moderate-minded. Uh, borderline technocratic civil servants who are Republicans who work inside the Nixon administration in the 1970s. And they don't view uh, running the federal government as a political act. They, they, they view their own work in pretty nonpartisan terms. And so even if someone comes from a fairly conservative background, like Johnny Walters, uh, or even George Shultz to a lesser extent, they don't view their own work as a political act. And uh, that Nixon clashes with this over and over and over again. Uh, the last part of my book looks at the Saturday Night Massacre, when Elliot Richardson famously resigned in protest instead of firing the Watergate special prosecutor Archibald Cox. 
And in many ways, that decision was linked to this broader culture of nonpartisan civil service that dominated not all, certainly not all, uh, but a significant part of the Nixon administration during the 1970s. And I, I'd say that culture has, has faded away. Uh, many of these figures who were praised for their actions during the Watergate era, there's no better example than Elliot Richardson, a moderate Republican from Massachusetts. He's praised as the hero, the hero of the Saturday Night Massacre. Uh, he has very little to no influence on the direction of the Republican Party, certainly by the 1980s. Uh, by, by 1984, he can't even win an open Senate seat in his home state of Massachusetts. He's clobbered by a, a Reagan conservative by the name of Ray Shamey, who beats him in the GOP primary in Massachusetts by more than 20 points. He's a Trump-like character, a Boston-area businessman, and he clobbers the hero of Watergate. Uh, and I think that's, well, granted, while that's just one moment, uh, it's an important moment that's symbolic of the Republican Party's shift to a more Nixonian approach, not only to politics, but even running the federal government. And while the Republican Party had moderates who did not see the, the federal government as a, a weapon to be used against their enemies, Nixon himself prided himself on what he called toughness and, dis, and, and criticized all these other people for lacking toughness. Uh, his theory was you hit back at your enemies. That sounds a lot like Donald Trump. Yes, it does. Uh, there are important differences between the two, but if you listen to enough of the Nixon tapes, there's a lot of Trump-like language. Uh, the conclusions that Nixon comes to are very similar to Trump's. And so even though they're, they're two different uh, figures, they're not exactly the same, What's important when talking about both Nixon and Trump is talking about how they're connected, and they're connected by their own authoritarian uh, approach to the presidency. Michael Konsiewicz, his new book is They Said No to Nixon, Republicans Who Stood Up to the President's Abuses of Power. Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me on, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up... The great Ricky Jay, he died on Sunday. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. Same old story back again. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. But first, we're still thinking about Ricky Jay, who died on Sunday. He was a master showman, one of the world's greatest sleight-of-hand artists. He did amazing things with a deck of cards, his 52 assistants, as he called them. He also wrote a dozen books. He starred in many films, including Boogie Nights and Magnolia. He starred in the TV show Deadwood. We spoke with him here at KPFK in 2001 when his book, Jay's Journal of Anomalies, was published. On that show, we introduced him as star of stage screen and the printed page. He does amazing things with 
a deck of cards. His one-man show, Ricky J and His 52 Assistants, won an Obie Award and set a record as the fastest-selling show in off-Broadway history. He's also appeared in David Mamet's films House of Games, Things Change, The Spanish Prisoner, and State in Maine. He's also in Boogie Nights in Magnolia, and his book, Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women, was a bestseller. Now he's got a new book out, Jay's Journal of Anomalies. Ricky Jay, welcome to KPFK. Nice to be here, John. Well, first of all, would you tell us the complete title of your new book? Well, it's called Jay's Journal of Anomalies, but the subtitle is Conjurers, Cheats, Hustlers, Hoaxers, Pranksters, Jokesters, Imposters, Pretenders, Sideshow Showmen, Armless Calligraphers, Mechanical Marvels, and Popular Entertainment. (laughs) Thank you very much. I have to say it is a beautiful book. It's one of the most beautiful books uh, I know of. Gorgeous illustrations, old typography. I know that this started not as a book, but as a periodical that you uh, put out. Tell us a little bit about the origins of Jay's Journal of Anomalies. Well, it really is a Los Angeles-based project. I collaborated with uh, a wonderful printer, uh, Pat Ray, who was in those years in Glendale. He now lives up north. Uh, And we designed this together, and he's one of the great letterpress printers left in the world. And it was published initially by myself and William and Victoria Daly, who have an antiquarian bookshop on Melrose. And it was done as something that was just sort of a labor of our love. The illustrations were all pieces from my collection, playbills and broadsides and uh, prints that that I've gathered over 30 years of uh, running around and performing and spending the days in print shops and bookshops. And the historical material uh, was researched and written by me because that's one of the great pleasures in my life. The the New York Times called the journal uh, a combination of rigorous scholarship and personal rumination. I I wonder if you accept the personal rumination part. Well, I I suppose I will, gladly. Uh, You know, my take on, uh, you know, dental deception (laughs) and various other strange topics. Now, now, what's this about show business dogs stealing acts from other dogs? Well, indicative of that age and sadly our own. But uh, the most famous learned dog who ever lived was probably uh, a dog who for years was thought to be a poodle. Even I was tricked by the iconography, which seemed to me very poodle-like. But this was a dog named Munito in 1817. Uh, Munito, who who was able to... uh, pick out cards and uh, do various spelling and arithmetic stunts and uh, arithmetic stunts and point to the correct people in the audience and uh, do various problems which would delight and amuse the spectators. And this dog uh, had many, many imitators. Uh, I mentioned one named Monetto, who is a particular favorite of mine, but there were many others over the years. And so I use this as a little parable about uh, entertainers stealing the acts of <laughs> other entertainers in, uh, in more recent times as well. You are a a scholar of the Flea Circus, which you dub the smallest show on earth. And you write that for many people today, the notion of a trained, costumed insect actor is incomprehensible. But isn't there some justification for this skepticism? 
Um, well, I suppose there there have been fraudulent flea circuses, if that's what you're implying. Yes. Uh, I'll be the first to admit there have been, but there are also real flea circuses, where the great skill seems to be not so much in teaching a flea to roll a ball or jump or, uh, or to impersonate Napoleon or reenact the siege of Antwerp, <laughs> uh, all of which they've been known to do, but rather uh, the skill of a man who is able to fasten a collar around a flea. Wow. Uh, a particularly unusual skill, which goes back many years. The, the real uh, the uh, man I call the David Merrick of his day was a man named Bertolotto, an Italian who really popularized the flea circus in the 1830s and literally had his tiny stars performing on Broadway. But as far back as the 16th century, a famous jeweler named Mark Scalio was known to have fastened a flea with 24 tiny gold links and, and a lock, a tiny miniature lock, which the flea was able to, uh, to move along with no problem whatsoever. I have heard on very good authority that there is a, a performance artist who's come out of Cal Arts who, who works with fleas. You know about this woman? Yes, uh, uh, Maria Cardozo, I believe her name and is. I mm. heard that she went to the uh, Edinburgh Festival this year. So the flea circus is, is not dead in our time. No, it's it's alive and well. Uh, uh, the toughest part is, of course, feeding the fleas, which does require some human involvement <laughs> of a, a kind of sacrifice I personally am unwilling to make, but uh, Miss Cardozo apparently is not. Uh, now, does she, does, like, once you train fleas, then are they like your stable of, of, of actors, or do you recruit new fleas? when you arrive in well, Edinburgh. Well, unfortunately, their lifespans are not particularly long, so you're always uh, recruiting and uh, training new fleas. Yes. Maria Fernanda Cardoso. Yes. Flea Circus. We're getting enthusiastic nods from the control booth here, apparently. Have her fleas appeared on KPFK? Is that why we... we okay. I, I have not yet seen the Flea Circus. I did meet her. She came to a talk I did once, and uh, sadly, I missed the uh, the performance of, uh, of uh, her circus. Uh, I, I have to point out, though, that your chapter on the smallest show on Earth does have a subtitle, Parasites for Sore Eyes. I, I shudder to think that I actually placed that in the book. Now it's time for News You Can Use. Today's News You Can Use, Ricky Jay's Ultimate Diet. Ricky Jay, what is your ultimate diet? Well, I, I suppose the, the uh, ultimate diet is uh, eating nothing at all. <laughs> so uh, I, I can't imagine that that wouldn't have some uh, serious benefit uh, to people who actually wanted to lose some weight. But I, but I do speak um, uh, one of the chapters in the book is about uh, the deception of fasting imposters, of people who for years have claimed not to have, eat, uh, not to have eaten any food whatsoever. And once again, uh, one of the things I love to do is trace these things throughout history. Uh, you find uh, in 1575 a wonderful Dutch woman named Eva Fliegen, who is supposed to have lived for 17 years on the scent of flowers alone. <laughs> It's wonderful. And, and in the 17th century, there's a woman named Martha Taylor who was said to have existed for more than a year on the juice of a single roasted raisin. <laughs> uh, have, you, have you thought of doing a diet book, a whole book on, on, on this topic? I, I have to admit the thought crossed my mind is diet books usually sell a lot more than books called Jay's Journal of Anomalies. But uh, There were some famous stage performers whose act was, you call it performance fasting. 
Well, it's actually true. In the 19th century and even, even in the 20th, Kafka even wrote a piece about it called The Hunger Artist, oh, which, yes. is, which is quite a wonderful story. But there were people who would go to fairground uh, spots and would be placed in an enclosure where they could be watched by someone uh, at all hours of the day or night and not eat. The difference is that these are people who were able to do this for uh, 20 or 30 days, perhaps, during the run of a fair. But one of the things that makes these early imposters so, uh, well, so preposterous <laughs> is that they would often claim to have not eaten for years. Uh, Anne Moore, the uh, fasting woman of Tutbury in the 19th century, claimed not to have eaten for years. And uh, then, of course, uh, since there was deception involved, it led us to the rather ticklish area of how one disguised uh, not only ingesta but uh, egesta, since that would be the result of, uh, of eating on the sly. So, so uh, as someone interested in the art of deception, this uh, naturally arrested my attention. Now, uh, part of your your interest in the arts of deception has um, has led you into movies. You've worked a lot with David Mamet. I think The Spanish Prisoner was probably the the, the biggest film about about deception. Um, tell us a little bit about what it was like work, working with Mamet on uh, on The Spanish Prisoner. Well, it was wonderful. I, I mean, we we've had a long working relationship and uh, done I think a half a dozen films together. We have a new one. And tell us about well. the new one. Uh, the new one is called Heist and is not surprisingly a heist film, but there, there are layers of deception in that as well. Not, not quite the same as The Confidence Worker, but uh, the heist mob in this film is, uh, is uh, Gene Hackman, Delroy Lindo, and myself. And uh, we're occasionally thwarted by Danny DeVito, Sam Rockwell, and Rebecca Pigeon. So a really wonderful cast to work with. I know you're interested in the arts of deception, but but in your own live work on stage, you also do some extraordinary uh, physical feats that, as far as I know, don't involve deception. You you throw uh, cards, you throw cards uh, across the stage a considerable distance into uh, a watermelon, and I've seen you throw cards very uh, over a two-story building. Th- this is not deception. No, I suppose it's a skill. And now that you see me in person in the studio. Uh, you're no doubt amazed by the incredible strength which I <laughs> yes. managed to conceal in my everyday life, but uh, enables me to propel a card over uh, many stories. Does this just come natural, or 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 can anyone learn to th- to throw a card into a a watermelon? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn throwing playing <laughs> cards, throwing baseball cards, um, uh, and had a great collection. If I had only kept that, it would probably be worth more than my entire library, but. Um, I did write a book. My first book, which came out in 1977, was called Cards as Weapons. And it was a study of, uh, of throwing playing cards where I actually taught those skills. Um, I don't know how many acolytes have since inhabited the planet, but I, I think every now and then one runs into one. Uh, Ricky J, I, I looked up your uh, biography uh, online and found it Hollywood.com, a very extensive biography that says that you you have uh, opened for Tina Turner. That's quite a distinction for a, a magician. Well, this was a long time ago. I think when I was about uh, 18 years old, I uh, appeared at the Electric Circus in New York, the very famous psychedelic nightclub on St. Mark's Place, and I was sandwiched in between uh, Tina Turner and Timothy Leary lecturing on acid. 
So it's a fairly vivid memory, although the memory of Tina Turner is considerably more vivid than that of Timothy. So, so Hollywood.com is, is right. In, in, in I don't know where they got that from, but it is, in fact, correct. And, and it also refers to something called the Virtual Ed Sullivan Show. What, what's the Virtual Ed Sullivan Show? Well, my, my, uh, my colleague and friend Andrew Solt uh, now owns and has for many years owned the Ed Sullivan Library. And one of the shows that he's done has been a compilation show in which a mechanical Ed Sullivan was indeed the host, a virtual uh, a creation uh, seen through the aid of uh, digital work and the movements of John Biner. And uh, I had, uh, unfortunately, not the ability to appear on the Ed Sullivan show as a kid, so this was my, uh, my way of paying homage. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Ricky Jay. He's got a new book out called Jay's Journal of Anomalies. It's a, it's a gorgeous, large-format book with a lot of uh, beautiful uh, uh, graphics and old uh, prints, beautiful uh, color. Uh, you have a section on, on dental deception. I, I was not aware that dental deception— that. That the show business included uh, uh, dental dental work. Well, first of all, why don't you just read us that first paragraph, which is one of my favorites in Jay's Journal of Anomalies? Well, I start with a quote uh, from Ambrose Bierce. Uh, he defined dentist as a prestidigitator who, putting metal into your mouth, pulls coins out of your pocket. And I say that Beer so defines and inexorably links the magician and the molar. <laughs> but the relationship between conjurers and teeth is of great antiquity. This nexus is reinforced in the vocabulario del Crusa, the important and scholarly Italian dictionary which defines charlatan as one who sells salves or other drugs in public places, pulls teeth, and exhibits tricks of ledger domain. And uh, Francisco, uh, Goethe de Francisco has observed that the most striking feature of this definition is the association of ledger domain with the ordinary business of peddling. Here we investigate the compelling connection between dentistry, deception, and entertainment in the early modern period. Dentists were public performers displaying a surprising variety of skills at open-air fairs in front of live audiences. Dexterity, audacity, and a highly developed gift of gab no conjurer or quack could do without them. <laughs> Ricky J., what was it like to go see a, uh, a dental performance in, in olden days? Well, one that, I, that I'm particularly fond of was the great magician Hofsenzer, the great Viennese magician of the mid-19th century, was once at an important state dinner, and a beautiful woman was at the table, and someone admired her teeth. And the woman said, uh, let me show them to you. And she asked for a goblet and then took the teeth out of her mouth. And they were circulated to the rather confounded, uh, confounded diners. And at one point, the glass was put to Dr. Hofsenzer, who covered it for an instant with his hand. When he moved his hand down, the teeth had vanished from the glass. He pointed to the woman, who with a dazzling smile showed that they had returned to her mouth. And it was in that way that he introduced his wife, Wilhelmina, to polite Viennese society. <laughs> uh, very, very striking. And and in earlier times, uh, when you went to a fair or something, you could see you could see dentists doing doing what? Well, uh, <laughs> using uh, using Mary Andrews or magicians to to engage a crowd in the fairgrounds, and then sometimes the dentist himself would perform ledger domain. The the art of shopography, which is making many many hats with a piece of felt, was in fact introduced on the dental stage by a uh, by a charlatan uh, called Tabarin. 
And uh, the other thing that I love so much about the actual pulling of teeth was that usually if there was a band which accompanied the dentist, at the moment that the teeth were pulled, the band would play at an incredibly loud volume, thereby masking the sounds of the howling victims <laughs> who were having their teeth plucked out. <laughs> We've only got a minute or two left here. I wanted to talk a little bit about your 52 assistants. You're, you're most famous for your, for your skill at cards. Where do, where do card tricks come fit into the the panoply of uh, of deception and skill? Well, probably as, as early as cards were invented, there were people who were already beginning to look at deceptive ways to use them to cheat or to uh, to, to entertain the public. So certainly by the 15th century, we have records of uh, really interesting effects being done with playing cards. And their introduction, cards themselves in Western Europe, probably is, uh, is no earlier than the 14th century. So it's from the very beginning. And they provide endless fascination. I mean, the idea of 52 assistants. I mean, just the limitless possibility of 52 objects. One, one could spend many lifetimes and not uh, and not even scratch the surface. Ricky J, thanks so much for coming into KPFK today. Nice to be here, John. Ricky J died on Sunday. He was 72. We spoke with him here in 2001. Well, finally it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. The climate report, the National Climate Assessment issued by the White House uh, the day after Thanksgiving contains urgent warnings for Minnesota that haven't gotten the attention they deserve. Climate change, it says, is going to make Minnesota hotter, make people sicker, and threaten the wild rice crop. Uh, it says that uh, the Midwest will experience greater warm season temperature increases than any other region of the United States, and this will lead to more temperature-related premature deaths in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Uh, it also says that the disease-carrying insect population will expand their range as climate warms, uh, bringing uh, diseases like West Nile to the Midwest uh, over the next several decades. Uh, also, harmful algae blooms will become more widespread and more intense, which put people at risk of getting sick from the water they drink or swim in. Toxic algae blooms, yet another thing to worry about as climate change comes to Minnesota. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Katha Pollitt, talked about conservative white women and Donald Trump. We also spoke with Michael Consowitz. He talked about Republicans who stood up to the president's abuses of power. His new book is They Said No to Nixon. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry, quickly. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>